Good morning. It's a privilege to address you. And uh, I have, Sharon and I have just really enjoyed our time getting to know uh, this part of the world and, and uh, your church. I appreciate the invitation of, of uh, Jeff and Steve and the elders who would have us up. And uh, just, it's been just a pleasure. Weather, we could work on that a little bit, but uh, other than that, uh, yesterday was gorgeous. I really appreciate that. Um, just had a chance to meet many of you yesterday. If you did not have a chance, I, I want to urge you um, to think about passing the gospel to your kids. God has not just given you a child, but an eternal soul. And so uh, there are, I have some books in the back um, and it's really not about selling books, but it's more about equipping you, really, if you're a parent, with your most vital task. God hasn't just given you a child. He's given you an eternal soul. Um, and I also have some books that if your kids saw them, they might grab called Donut Date Journals. So you can, I'll be happy to talk to you about those uh, more uh, later, but I don't want to focus on that right now. Just by way of introduction, uh, I... Grew up in a Christian home and planted and pastored a church in New England, uh, Rhode Island, near Boston, uh, which uh, New England's very similar in terms of the spiritual uh, health and the spiritual uh, nature of, uh, uh, of Newfoundland. Um, in terms, there's just, there's the need of the gospel. There are many who've not heard the gospel, and often we're seen as the strange ones. Um, and then five years ago, God just changed my heart to pursue this ministry aimed at helping parents pass the gospel to their kids. But if I've learned anything in terms of leading a church or leading a family, my children now are 27 to 21, and I'm actually in my right mind, clothed and in my right mind. Um, if I've learned anything about leading a church and family, it's this, that unity and peacemaking skills are vital for your success. Unity and peacemaking skills are vital for your success. You know, we're, the, the Bible says that if you're a follower of Christ, that you are a saint, but you're also, we also act, still act like sinners. And unfortunately, many times, unity and conflict resolution skills are just assumed. I remember in 1988, the church I had just... Uh, planted and was pastoring for a while, went through a time of church disagreement, prolonged church disagreement. And lo and behold, that drove me back to the Bible. And what I found is that almost every epistle in the New Testament, every letter in the New Testament, has something about conflict and unity and peacemaking skills. Lo and behold, it was all over. In fact, the writer of Proverbs, even the Old Testament, knows how important unity is because he says this about the family. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf with hatred. And better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. What he's saying is that more important, more important than our financial health as a family is our unity. And maybe you've experienced that where you've eaten a meal when there was disagreement in the house. And it just, ugh, it just hurt. It hurts your, your, uh, your heart. We know life is filled with conflict. But you know, the scripture says that actually Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? The Prince of Peace. And where he comes, he brings peace. Often through conflict, but he brings peace 
through the sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross. And his spirit gives us peace. Fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And actually, he commands us, if we are his followers, to be peacemakers wherever we go. Because sin causes conflict, right? And there's conflict. There's conflict in the workplace. There's conflict all over. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning as we look, we're going to look at these scriptures, is that God cares about the unity of our churches. God cares about the unity of this church. And God cares about the unity of your family also. And so should you. So should you. Unity actually is a peace worth fighting for. And so our text this morning is Ephesians 4. We've already uh, read it. If you want to follow along, you can open your Bibles. Uh, it's, let's see, I think it's 1164 in the Bible that uh, comes, comes with the... Uh, comes with the building. I'm going to be looking at Ephesians 4 and specifically 1 to 3. And if you like to take notes, my outline is this, that God, number one, God has an overarching command for you and really all Christians, and that is we walk worthy, walk worthy of our calling. Secondly, God's specific commands for families and churches is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's one of the applications. And then my third point, if you're taking notes, is God's provision for that unity is the Spirit's work. So if you're taking notes, God's overarching command for us is to walk worthy. God's specific commands is to maintain the unity. And then God provides for the commands. Provision for that unity is the Spirit's work. But I want to start, if you, if you understand the book of Ephesians you've got your, or you've got your Bible open, I want to set the context because Ephesians is a great book. And if it can be neatly divided into two parts. Chapters, in chapters 1 and 3, Paul lays out, 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out the glory of the church and the glory of the gospel. You will find in chapter 1 to chapter 3, zero commands to do things. There's nothing that God tells us, God commands us to do. And then in chapters 4 and 6, based on all of 1 to 3, God says, here are, here are the duties that go along with those privileges. So if you, if you have your Bible or you just want to listen, chapter 1, Paul says that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That you're a saint. That God has called you, you, before time Begin that your sins are forgiven, that you are adopted as God's child, that you have been given the Spirit's power within. You have been given a hope that will not fail. We're part of a church for which Christ is ruling in heaven right now over the whole world. In chapter 2, Paul goes on and says that it was God out of his great mercy who made you alive. Your heart was unresponsive to God, using the word, Paul uses the word dead. You were unresponsive to God, and God gave you a heart transplant. 
and made you alive to God. And he's done that with other people. And the cool thing about this church, as he goes on in chapter 2, is it's a new community of Jews and Gentiles and all sorts of Gentiles. And through that diversity, as God's making a new man, it displays, in chapter 3, it displays to the whole universe God's manifold wisdom. That he can bring all these things together. And so it's based on all that God has done that in chapter 4, 5, and 6 he says, do, do. Here's how we're to treat one another, chapter 4. We are to have sexual purity. We're to speak to each other in certain ways. We're to live by the Spirit in our marriage, in our home, in our employee-employer relationship. We're to fight the spiritual battle. And so it's really important to keep that in mind. Done is greater than do. There is do. But what God has done is much greater than what we're to do. And so it's in that context that we actually come to chapter 4, verse 1, because it's a hinge verse. It it makes the transition where Paul is saying, here is all that God has done for us. Here's all you've inherited. Here's all God has just given you. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And one one, one, uh, uh, principle of translation is you always ask, uh, uh, in Bible studies, you always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? So based on all of God, what God has done for you, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you don't get anything else out of this message, that's the message. In fact, that shows up, that, that, that idea, that phrase shows up in numerous epistles. Walk worthy of your calling. Why? Because identity comes before behavior. Doctrine comes before duty. Provision comes before, before uh, command. That's the Christian life. God has done all this for you. Now, come to church. Read your Bible. Do all sorts of things. But it's, it's not to earn our way to God. It's because God has done so much. And specifically, Paul sums it up by saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live up. Live up to what you've inherited. Maybe an illustration will help this. It does cross national boundaries, but I think you'll get it. Um, the, the, tomb of the, uh, the tomb guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier in the United States in Arlington, Virginia. It's a great privilege Only 600 men and women have ever been selected for that duty. And those who have this honor bestowed on them feel a responsibility. So there's all these soldiers, but only 600 have the indication that they are a tomb guard. And if you're a tomb guard, your clothes have to come to a higher standard. Your uniform is a higher standard. Your your moral code actually is higher And not only that, here's your duty. You walk up and down when it's really hot and the crowds are there. You walk up and down when it's 3 o'clock in the morning and no one's there. 
you stand guard through a hurricane, through a snowstorm. Now question, at 3 o'clock in the morning, in the middle, when we get a little taste of St. John's weather in D.C., and it's miserable in the winter, how do you feel if you're a tomb guard? Do you feel complaining, pity, or do you feel, no, I've been chosen for a great honor, and this is part of what comes with it? Think in a similar way, we are the same. God has chosen us out of all the peoples. God has chosen us for a great honor. And now, he says, live in line with this honor. Live in line with this honor. And that has all sorts of applications. And Paul spends the rest of Ephesians talking about how do we live like a special child of God? We, we, sang, that th- we sang that this morning, who I am. How do I live like who I am? But Paul goes on specifically, and this is, brings us to the second, my second point, specifically to a command that means, here's what, how I walk worthy. Chapter 4. I'm going to skip, hang on for a moment, I'm going to skip uh, verse 2, and I'm going to go down to verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're going to come back to the attitudes of verse 2, but right now, what I want, the point I want to make is that living in line with this honor or calling means that we maintain the, the Spirit's unity in our community. God cares about the unity of this church. Your family's unity, your church's unity is actually a working of, outworking of the gospel. That's what chapter 2 of Ephesians is about, that God's creating a new community and a new household where barriers... Cultural barriers are torn down. Where the gospel is at work, there's going to be a deep unity. Now, why does God care so much about unity? Well, our unity is actually a witness to the world. John 13, 35, Jesus says, All men will know you're my disciples. How? Because you know all the answers? No. Because you love one another. See, the church... The world can do better rock concerts than the church. I really enjoyed this music, but I'm sure we could go to a rock concert, right? Church, the world might even be able to do better sizzle with talks. Just turn on any YouTube um, um, talk. But the world cannot recreate deep love. That's supernatural. A loving church defies people's expectations. And so a loving, unified family as well is a witness to the gospel. I remember reading one book. uh, We'll be talking tonight about evangelism for the tongue-tied at 7 o'clock. I'd love to have you back. But as I was trying to work on my own witness, I remember reading one book called Living Proof uh, by Jim Peterson. And he talked about, he talked about, Uh, witnessing to a college student over and over about the truth of Christ. And then finally, the the college student bent his knee and said, yes, I want to trust Christ as my Savior. And of course, Jim, the guy who's writing this book, is wondering, what is it that I finally said that pushed you over the edge? And he said, you know what it was? He said, it was the time that my girlfriend and I were at your house for dinner. And I looked around and I said, when are my girlfriend and I going to have this type of family? And I said, I need to trust Christ. 
That's love. And, and Jim goes on to record, I remember that dinner when we had them over, and the kids weren't particularly good that day. It's the supernatural love that God creates. A loving family is rare. Most homes, though they start with high hopes, are filled with selfishness, fighting, and self-interest. Your family's unity, the church's unity, is a witness to the world. And why is that? It's because unity in diversity actually reflects the Trinity. You can begin to see that if you look in verses 4 to 6, where he says there is one body and one spirit and one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then Paul launches, very interestingly, into the gifts, the diversity of the church. See, most of us have not thought very deeply about the triune nature of God and how it impacts our lives. The Bible teaches there's one God who exists in three persons, and those three persons are fully God. I'm one being and one person. God is one being and three persons. And I know when I, I grew up in the church and would read the Bible, and when I read Genesis, it says, God, talking about God creating man and woman. And I thought of it, I thought of it like, well, God is, God's kind of like a lonely bachelor, and instead of getting a dog, he, he creates people. And so, so what I was thinking in my mind, in a sense, was God was deficient. But nothing could be further from the truth because what the Bible actually teaches is that God has been a triune community for eternity. God was in perfect community, loving each person, loving the, each other, from eternity past to eternity future. Tim Keller says it this way, The world was not created by God who is only an individual, nor is an emanation or an impersonal force. We believe the world was made by a God who was a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. And therefore, thinking about our application, you and I are made for mutually self-giving, others-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. Bruce Ware, commenting on this, said, There is full harmony in the work of the triune God, who, with no jealousy or bitterness, only love and harmony. The Father never considers himself better than the Son or the Spirit. The Son never begrudges the fact that He's the Son under the authority of the Father. The Spirit, while being third in the Trinity and always under the ultimate authority of the Father and Son, considers it His delight to honor and glorify the Son. We should be amazed at the unity and harmony of the common work within authority and relationships. And then he goes on to say, that's a model for understanding the family where members are fully equal in their value and dignity, and yet having distinct roles and purposes. That's the beauty of the Christian understanding of the triune God. Other religions, Islam, unity. Hinduism, diversity. The Bible says God is both unified and diverse, and I want my people to be unified and diverse. Let me just do a sidebar here and and just talk a little bit if you're not a follower of Christ, you need to understand that what the Bible says is that perfect community did not stay focused on itself. But out of God's overflowing love, He sent His own Son into the world, whom He loved. 
for, to die on a cross in our place, to be raised again and restored. I don't understand how the Trinity did not rip apart when the Father is pouring out wrath on his own Son. How can you, if you're not a follower of Christ, how can you not respond to that great love for you? The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that he loved from eternity past that if whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. And I invite you to respond to that great love for you and for me. Well, if there's something like church unity and family unity that's so important, then you can bet that the devil, the world, and our own flesh are going to oppose that. And that's exactly, what we, that's exactly what we find. So we've got families that are messy. Our family was messy growing up. Uh, it's less messy now that the four kids are out of the house. Still a little messy, right? Family's messy. Church is messy. And yet, what I love about verse 3, we're still under point 2 if you're taking notes, is that it's the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one producing unity. What's cool is you can go across the world and find true believers and feel at, feel at home. I, again, slight cultural differences is fun to, to interact with Jeff and, and Steve and, and uh, enjoy the slight but the differences. But because the Spirit lives within both of us, there's a bond. The sp- and, and let me just say, the Spirit is a Spirit of truth, and so yes, there are limits to unity. Unity can't come at the expense of gospel truth or, living, or not living in line with the gospel, but it's the Spirit who produces that unity. Now let's, let's look, go back to verse 2. Because God, God's provision, so we're to walk worthy, and what the, the way Paul highlights here to walk worthy is, is unity, relational unity and i'm applying it to both the church and the family and then but the third point here is god's provision for the unity is god's is the spirit's work in our character your character and in specific commands and so let's look at that let's return to verse 22 i'm sorry verse 2 where paul says this Verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With, and then he starts, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know what? Paul wouldn't need to list those virtues to maintain unity if it was automatic. In fact, a survey of Paul's letters revealed that, as we talked about, every single one of those early communities of disciples had conflicts. And so how does, what does Paul say? He, he talks specifically, what does walking worthy mean? It, 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 talk, it means growing in this character. The Holy Spirit is actually training your and my character. Contrary to what you, you and I think, this church and your family is not about your happiness but about your holiness. And if we get those backwards, we're going to be disappointed. For a family, what happens? God brings one sinner together with another sinner. They get together and what? Produce more sinners. Could you tell I can never write like greeting cards for new, new babies, you know? Congratulations on your new sinner. 
But in the midst of that little community of sinners, God has an agenda. So he's going to bring trials and conflicts that way to make you, mom and dad, son or daughter, more like your son, like his son. For a church, it's the same way. If you come in here saying, I have found the perfect church, it'll take about two, maybe two weeks to realize, oh no, these people aren't perfect. But here's the point, you should have realized that before because you came in and now it's not perfect. Right? I used to say as a pastor, people would come in and say, oh, this looks like a great church. And I'm saying, you know what? I, don't, I, I may not have offended you yet, but I, I will. Accidentally or on purpose, we're sinners. The church is a hospital. The church, the church is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And so we come in to serve, to, to, be, to bump up against each other, to grow. And so that's why Paul is able to say, how do we walk worthy of this high calling? Well, first, he lists humility. You can see that right there. He lists humility. Humility was despised by the Greeks. But here's what's amazing. We have a God who has humbled himself. That's, that, this characteristic that was despised by the Greeks and the Romans is our central virtue. And isn't pride behind many conflicts? God wants to work in us to make us more gentle than we are now. More gentle a year from now than you are this year. More patient a year from now than you are this year. How's he going to make you more patient a year from now than you are now? Bring trials? Bring trials? He wants to develop in us a forbearing spirit that loves even when others will never change. Let me just stop here and make one important exception to what I've been saying, and that is, that is I'm sure, um, if there's any type of domestic abuse in our household, we need to, you need to talk to one of the pastors. We do not have to put up with that. I can, we can talk a lot more about that. But what, what Paul gets at is at the core of our conflicts, my conflicts, your conflicts, our heart issues. Ken Sandy, in his book, Peacemaking for Families, said it this way, conflict always begins with some kind of desire. Now, some desires are inherently wrong, but many desires aren't wrong in themselves. What ha- what's wrong is that when the desire becomes a demand, it becomes an idol. You know, idols don't have to be metal. They can also be mental. There's something that I have to have. This, John Calvin recognized this. He said, the evil in our desire typically doesn't lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. We want it in that moment. That desire has become a demand, and I start to, to judge others or, or, or lash out in anger. And so the God's Spirit wants to work in our character so we will fight for unity. Does that make sense? God wants us, God has given us, do, done is greater than do, and therefore we're to walk worthy of that high calling. And then also, what specifically? Maintaining the unity. And then also, specifically, God working in our heart, making us more humble than we were this year, next year, more gentle, forbearing more. I want to 
under that, under that third point, though, also talk about not only the Spirit's development of our character, but also the Spirit's instructions for us to follow. And so the Spirit not only works godly character, but He also reveals instructions for us to follow. And here's where I want to take us down to a very practical level. Take kind of the Google map from high and zoom into the street level where you and I live day to day. And this is what I love about the Bible. Because the Bible, in a sense, you can think of an axis and it fills all quadrants. The Bible, this book tells us about the beginnings and the end. So we know, we know the timeline of existence. What other book tells us that? But not only that does it tell us the beginning and the end, it tells us the heights, what we can't see in heaven right now, those glorious truths, and what we're going to talk about now, the Bible gets its feet dirty. It gets down into the nitty-gritty of our lives. And I think what you'll find is the instructions are, are as practical and as relevant as today. Because biblical peace doesn't mean there's no conflicts, but rather that our conflicts are resolved in a way that glorifies God. So it doesn't mean there's no no conflict. In fact, if there's no conflict, something's wrong. Like one party's always giving in to the other. Just the fact that we live in a fallen world means that we're going to have disagreements. But the question is, how are we going to resolve those? So I'd like to give you, I'd like to end the message really by taking some time and and walking through 10 practical suggestions, 10 practical suggestions. So I'm going to be flipping back and forth. You're welcome to join me or you can just listen. But the first is found in John 17, John 17, 23, where Jesus said, where Jesus actually prays for unity. Jesus prays for unity. I want to suggest to you that if you're a spiritual leader in this church or you're a mom and a dad, to pray for the unity of my family, that our family would be a a family that glorifies God. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That they might be one. One of the ways we can lead as spiritual leaders, one of the ways we can lead as moms and dads is to pray for unity in our families. So that's the first suggestion. Just praying for unity. God, unify me with my spouse. I've had to pray that times with our family lord would we be a unified family jesus is praying that if he prayed that on his first final night certainly he's praying that now another suggestion very specific exam, suggestion which comes out of that passage in ephesians 4 is forbear forbear now what does forbear mean forbear means putting up with something small things that we're not going to cha- that are not going to change Maybe you've been married quite a while and you go, I don't think my spouse is ever going to change in that way. Yes, yes, does that resonate? Okay. For, forbearing is saying, you know what, this is, not, this is not a huge issue. We live in a fallen world. And in, in fact, what Jude talks about is fault finding is actually a sin. 
So we, that person who walks around and, and oh, there's, fault, you know, there's a fault, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need this. Jude said that's actually fault-finding as a sin. And so there's a call in which we are to forbear because others are forbearing with us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, We all have our own angles and edges, and these are apt, your angles, your edges, are apt to come in contact with others. We're all pieces of one puzzle and shall fit in with each other one day and make a complete whole. Yet just now we seem misshapen and unfitting. Our corners need to be rounded. Sometimes they're chipped off by collision with somebody else. And that's not comfortable for the person with whom we collide. Like pebbles in the river of the water of life, we are wearing each other round and smooth. As the living current brings us into communion, everybody is polishing and being polished. And in the process, it is inevitable that some present inconvenience should be sustained. But nobody must mind it, for it is a part of the great process by which we shall all come into proper shape and be made meet for ending fellowship. We want to be a church that forbears with our quirks. And let me just say something here, just a, a sidebar, if there are teens here today. One of the things I remember growing up in the church as a person growing up and saying, you know, our church has some really quirky people. This is me as a teen. And sort of going, really? Do we have to have quirky people? I'd rather, you know, I'd rather go to the nice place. But you know what that is on my part as a teen and even an adult? That's arrogance. What, what is cool about the church is it's a sociological miracle. And it is a safe place. It's family. And family is quirky. Let's just get it out in the open. You go to your family reunion and there's always crazy Uncle Bob. And so that's what makes family family. That's what makes the church cool is in fact that it receives all comers. That we don't, we're not just the cool church. If you're not cool, you can't come here. No, we're the church that's open to all. And so, so just to, to, to look at the love that's demonstrated in a church that receives everyone, that's a sociological, that's a sociological miracle. And rather than being embarrassed by it, say this is what makes our church great. Number two, forbear. Number one, pray for unity. Second suggestion, forbear in small matters. And then if you take your Bible and, and look at Matthew 7, we're going to stick around Matthew 7 there for a couple of times. Matthew 7, Jesus says, get the log out of your own eye first. How can you point out the speck in your brother's eye? There is something about sin where we can point out exactly what's wrong with the other person. But we cannot see what's wrong. And so, and so in Matthew 7, Jesus says, let me get there. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye or your spouse's eye, but you do not see the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, your spouse, your friend, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in, you, in your own? So one is just to be hard. A, four, a third suggestion is to make sure I'm, I'm getting the log out of my own eye. 
Milton said this in Paradise Lost, talking about Adam and Eve. Thus they, in mutual accusation, spent the fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning. And of the vain contest appeared no end. Milton was saying, Adam, you, you know, projecting his fiction, but he was saying what sin had done is rather than saying, oh, this was my part in this fight, in this sin, constantly going back and forth. So pray for unity, forbearance, small matters, get the log out of your own eye. Number four, forgive true offenses. It's right there in Matthew 6. We're right there with the Lord's Prayer. Where Jesus commands us, where he says, forgive us our debts. This is the way we're to pray. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses. C.S. Lewis commenting on this said it this way. It's perhaps not so hard to forgive a single injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand and by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lewis goes on, we are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it means to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. Is there somebody in your life where you need to extend forgiveness? God calls us to forgive, yes, real sins, real sins against us. But we forgive real sins against us because of Matthew 18, how much we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven so much. How could we not extend that? So number four, forgive true offenses. And then since we're there in Matthew, number five, and this is, I just love this about, I just love this about Jesus. If you think about an offense, offenses are off, it's one party is usually the offender. One party is the offended And then there's often an observer, right? So there's really often three parties in some sort of conflict. The offender, I'll put that on myself here, the offended, and the observer. What Jesus does is give commands to each one of those parties and say, resolve this. For example, here's the party, here's the command to the offended. Matthew 18, if your brother goes, sins against you, Go to him. I think that might be one of the most violated verses of the, of the Bible by Christians. If someone sins against me, Jesus is saying, move towards them. Have a hard conversation. Use pleasant words, but I'm to go to them. I wonder if there right now is a, a situation, a tension in the church where, where someone has sinned against you, where you need to say, uh, can we talk? Can we talk? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move towards a hard conversation with pleasant words because Jesus says, if, if someone sins, if my brother sins against me, I'm supposed to go. Let me just put a sidebar in here as well. Listen, if you are in a part of a, a family where there are family secrets, this is your fire alarm. Family secrets do not have ultimate authority. Jesus says, that, that actually, if, the, if, if, 
if a spouse or something is sinning against me, I'm actually supposed to go to them, and that if they won't listen, to go to someone else. So I'm going to, number one, Jesus says, if you're the offender, uh, sorry, offended, but then Matthew 5.23 says, if, you've, if you think you've offended someone, you should go. Don't let the relationship wither. Matthew 5.23 says, if you're offering a gift and remember that your brother has something against you, put down your gift and go be reconciled with your brother. So Jesus already has given a command to the offending person, offended, the offend, uh, uh, sorry, the, the person who um, has offended or, or, or been offended. But you know what happens? It was like this in my church. I'm tempted. I've sinned this way. Probably you have as well. You, somehow there's a conflict. What's the first thing you want to do? Go tell somebody else, right? Go tell somebody else. I can't believe, can you believe they did this? And what Jesus says is he, and if you're the person who hears that, Jesus in Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers. So he traps. He says, if you hear, if you're, if you're the person, now you're involved, you need to be a peacemaker. And so it's not, it's not gossip to go and talk to the leadership and say, okay, or to call, talk to those two people and say, you need to deal with this. I just love that. Jesus, th- those verses are, are as modern as 2018. If you're the offended, if you're the offender, if you're the observer, Jesus has commands for you. Let me just finish these last few and then we'll finish up. Adjust your expectations. We've already talked about that. Uh, Jean Varnier has a quote, quote, quotation where he talks about the reason that we come into community. Often we come in to find something dynamic, but the reason we come in is God actually wants to teach us to learn to forgive. Think about it. You can't learn to forgive by yourself. Community gives you that chance. So number eight, adjust your expectations. Number nine, discern the issue. Is it important enough? And number 10, don't mistake niceness for unity. Don't mistake niceness for unity. Paul confronted Peter. Peter, Paul split up with Barnabas. There are times unity, having hard conversations, are vitally important. There's a lot more that can be said. I'm going to stop there now because of time. God's Word, Ephesians, says this. And God's Word says this. You and I, if we're followers of Christ, God has given us a high and a holy calling. It's difficult. I know it is. Jesus said in John 7, narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And especially if you're a teen and you feel like I'm, I'm the only one in my school that follows Christ, it can be difficult because why? We think, well, truth, if the, can the majority be wrong? And Jesus says, yes, yes, people who follow me have always been on the narrow way. We've always been a minority. But it is a high and it's a holy calling that God has given us. And so, based on all God has done, Ephesians 1 to 3 and more, all over the Scripture, all that Jesus has done, the big command is this. Go out today and live like a child of the King. Go out today and live like one who's been adopted. Go out today 
and live like one who's been declared a saint. Go out today, live like one who has a, an eternal hope. And one specific way you do that, and it can be a hard way, is to walk through conflict. Walk through conflict, bringing peace wherever you are. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for their attentiveness and, and just the joy to know that there is a, a witness in this area with, with visions to plant the gospel. And I think about even now, there have got to be so many families in this province that are being torn apart by sin and don't have any idea how, how to work through unity. Their hearts are breaking. And you've given us the gospel and you've given us principles that apply even now. And so thank you for that stewardship. Thank you for the high calling. And Lord, help us to walk worthy. Whatever context, whatever challenge you've brought into our lives, we want to walk worthy of that great and high calling. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.